It's the year 1960. Ken Kesey is working the night shift at Menlo Park Veterans Hospital in the Bay Area of San Francisco. He's garnered elements for a novel that he hasn't been able to expand upon just yet, but he knows that what he's got is good, too good to dismiss. But he also knows that he needs additional elements for the story to work and for it to hopefully become his next novel. Working at the hospital, at times under the influence of hallucinogenic drugs he has been volunteering to take as an experiment, his experience of the patients is different than that of the other attendants. He sees the patients not as insane, but as misunderstood by society. They don't fit the social stigmas of how people are supposed to act and think. And for that reason, they are being propped full of drugs that keep them catatonic. As the nights keep stretching on, and as he gets to know the patients more intimately, and as his mind keeps expanding and altering through the use of hallucinogenics, he finds the elements he's been searching for. He soon gets down to writing the book that will put him on the map of world-renowned authors. He doesn't know it yet, but his book will be huge. It will be hailed and disparaged. It will become a theater play and an award-winning movie. This story will be one of America's most controversial and often banned novels. Now, the title of the book is taken from a nursery rhyme, Ventery Mentery Cuttery Corn, Apple Seed and Apple Thorn, Wire Briar Limberlock, Three Geese and a Flock. One flew east and one flew west, and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, authors, and those who are willing to stray far outside the box. I am your host, Jason Nemoa Hardin, and today we're exploring the trip that was the life of Ken Kesey and his novel, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Here's a short synopsis from the Picador movie tie-in version. Chief Brumden, half-American Indian, whom the authorities believe is deaf and dumb, tells the story of a mental institution ruled by a big nurse on behalf of the all-powerful Combine. Into this terrifying great world comes McMurphy, a brawling gambling man, who wages total war on behalf of his cowed fellow inmates. What follows is at once hilarious and heroic, tragic and ultimately liberating. Quote, you don't lead people by pointing and telling people someplace to go. You lead by going to that place and making a case. End quote. Ken Elton Kesey was born in La Junta, Colorado on September 17, 1935 to dairy farmers Geneva and Frederick A. Kesey. In 1946, the family moved to Springfield, Oregon, where Ken would later become a champion wrestler in high school, where he was voted most likely to succeed. His wrestling career continued in college in the 174-pound weight division. He displayed great athletic talent and almost qualified to be on the Olympic team, before a serious shoulder injury halted his wrestling career. Well, with a career within pro wrestling on the shelf, he had to find an alternative route to success. An avid reader and film goer, he took to actor John Wayne and authors Edgar Rice Burroughs and Zane Gray as his role models. 
He would even later name one of his sons Zane. He also toyed with magic, ventriloquism, and hypnotism for a while. Though many passions attracted him, he landed on writing and attended the University of Oregon School of Journalism and Communication in neighboring Eugene, Oregon. That is, until he eloped with his high school sweetheart, Norma Faye Haxby, whom he met in seventh grade. Without Faye, Kesey later stated he would have been swept overboard by notoriety and weird, dope-fueled ideas and flower-child girls with beamy eyes and bulbous breasts. Faye was apparently the balance he needed. Ken and Faye would go on to have three children together and remained married until death did part them. He would return to school after eloping, but, increasingly bored and disinfatuated by the playwriting and screenwriting courses that comprised much of his major, he began to take literature classes in the second half of his college career. He would graduate from the University of Oregon with a B.A. in speech and communication in 1957. He was taken and consumed by science fiction literature for many years, his favorite writer being Ray Bradbury. He wouldn't venture into more traditional fiction until after college. James B. Hall, a cosmopolitan alumnus of the Iowa Writers' Workshop Hall, took Kesey in as his protege and cultivated his interest in literary fiction, introducing him to the works of Ernest Hemingway and other figures of literary modernism. After a short career as a struggling actor in Los Angeles, Kesey published his first short story, First Sunday of September, in the Northwest Review. His talent was quite apparent. He would then apply to the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship for the 1958-59 academic year. During his first fellowship year, he frequently clashed with center director Wallace Stegner, a renowned novelist of the American West who regarded Kesey as, quote, a sort of highly talented, illiterate, and rejected his application for a departmental Stegner Fellowship, a unique writing program. Reinforcing these perceptions, Stegner's deputy, Richard Scowcroft, later recalled that neither Wallace nor he thought that Ken had a particularly important talent, which should go to show that one must choose one's critics with care, if not dismiss most and follow one's own path. Stegner, according to others, would go even further in his dislike of Ken, calling the young, aspiring author a threat to civilization, intellectualism, and sobriety. He would also continue to reject his Stegner Fellowship applications between 1959 and 1961. Unwilling to be dismayed by Stegner or others' judgment, he continued writing and received the prestigious $2,000 Harper Saxton Prize for his first novel in progress entitled Zoo. Zoo was a novel about beatniks living in the North Beach community of San Francisco. Although he received a prize for the ongoing process of the novel, it would be rejected by publishers and would ultimately never be published. While studying and living a bohemian life in Palo Alto, he learned of governmental experiments with psychomimetic drugs. He volunteered for these experiments, which would later greatly influence his literature as much as him as a person. Reflecting upon this period in an interview conducted in 1999, he recalled, I was too young to be a beatnik and too old to be a hippie. Thus, he had to make his own path once again, something he would do as soon as the 1960s kicked into gear. While under the tutelage of Malcolm Cowley, 
he began to draft and workshop the manuscript that would evolve into One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He has never denied that psychedelic drugs were a big inspiration for his novel. According to some sources, he was under the influence of peyote when writing certain sections of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Now, at the invitation of Perry Lane and Stanford psychology graduate student Vic Lovell, his neighbor, Ken volunteered to take part in what turned out to be a CIA finance study under the aegis of Project MKUltra. MKUltra was a highly secret military program at Menlo Park Veterans Hospital, which would have many consequences for those involved, and not always with positive outcomes. Coincidentally, he already worked at Menlo Park Veterans Hospital as a night aide. The project studied the effects of psychedelic drugs, particularly LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, cocaine, AMT, and DMT on individuals. He wrote many detailed accounts of his experiences with these drugs, both during the study and in the years of private drug use which followed. The inspiration for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest arose partially while he was working the night shift at Menlo Park. There, he often spent time talking to the patients, sometimes under the influence of the hallucinogenic drugs he was given as part of the experiment. As mentioned earlier, he would perceive reality quite differently than other co-workers, at times identifying more with the logic of what the patients were telling him. He came to understand that these so-called insane patients knew something that the doctors did not know. Part of that was that these patients were in the hospital, not because of some Freudian notion that something had occurred to them as children, but rather they were in there because something had happened to them in their adult lives. He concluded that the patients were not insane, but rather that society had pushed them out because they did not fit the conventional ideas of how people were supposed to act and behave. He could identify with this feeling of being an outlier and began to contemplate how he himself could have been locked up in there with the other patients if his own circumstances had been different. The first source of inspiration regarding the novel, however, did not come from his stay at Menlo Park, though the stint there would work to solidify the path. He has stated that the first seeds were sown while riding a bus towards Portland with his father. While en route, the bus came to a stop at a big scene where police and paramedics were all over the road. The bus driver got out and asked a construction worker who was walking by at the moment if he knew what was going on. The construction worker told the bus driver that he was there because they were in the process of building the first big dam on the Columbia River. This dam would wipe out Salilo Falls, which was where Ken had watched Indians live and catch fish while growing up. The Indians and their lifestyle had fascinated him as a youngster, and the thought of them being wiped out stirred something in him. The construction worker went on to tell that one of the Indians from the tribe, whom the construction worker claimed was drunk, walked out onto the road with a knife between his teeth and ran into the grill of one of their large trucks in what was perceived as an act of protest. This struck Ken as a literal visual of the Indian taking on a modern American machine head-on with a knife in his mouth. From then, he began constructing the idea of a novel about an Indian who sees the establishment and its figures of power as machines. 
Now fast forward to the job at Menlo Park, in addition to the psychedelic drugs which helped him continue to mold and shape his idea. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was written in 1959 and published in 1962 in the midst of the civil rights movement and in the midst of deep changes being made to the way psychology and psychiatry were being approached in America. Also of note, the 1960s were the beginning of the controversial movement towards deinstitutionalization, which seemed like the perfect timing for his novel to be released. The title of the novel was taken from a nursery rhyme which is mentioned near the end of the novel when it is revealed that Chief Bromden's grandmother sang a version of the rhyme to him when he was a child. A fact that is revealed when Chief Bromden received yet another ECT treatment along with McMurphy. According to Kesey, the message of the novel is like all his other books, about the little being able to overcome the big if they only are clever enough to outsmart them also with a little luck and a little love. Keeping in mind the overall message of all his books, it might not come as a surprise that his favorite novel was Herman Melville's Moby Dick. As Ken puts it, Moby Dick deals with what I call the American terror. It's the thing that's out there ahead of us in the new frontier, the particular thing that is really frightening to us, that we avoid, until finally you've got an Ahab who goes out there and takes it on, for good or for evil, he takes it on. Quote, I believe that with the advent of acid, we discovered a new way to think, and it has to do with piecing together new thoughts in your mind. Why is it that people think it's evil? What is it about it that scares people so deeply, even the guy that invented it? What is it? because they're afraid that there's more to reality than they have confronted, that there are doors that they're afraid to go in and they don't want us to go in there either, because if we go in, we might learn something that they don't know, and that makes us a little out of their control." End quote. Not much is known about Ken Kesey's particular habits when writing books, except that he stated that he needs a dark closet in which to write in. He attempted writing in a cabin by the coast at one point, but he would find himself unable to do little else than just peer out the window at the stunning nature. He once told a friend that nature was bad for writing, in his case. Along with staying away from nature, his first writing commandment was, do not write what you know, because what you know is usually dull and you want to entertain your reader. He said this, despite the fact that he wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest based on a setting that he knew about. He once said that it's just as hard to write a bad book as it is to write a good book. There's a lot on the line when you reveal your writing. Now for that reason, he felt it vital for writers to be gentle with one another and with the criticism about someone else's work. Later in his career, he mentioned that writing well was a young man's game. It was something he could do when he had the intensity and stamina and dedication to spend 30 hours straight writing, implying that he was no longer able to tackle such feats. Quote, I've enjoyed being a famous writer, except that every once in a while, you have to write something. End quote. 
Published under the guidance of Cowley in 1962, the novel was an immediate success. In 1963, it was adapted into a successful stage play by Dale Wasserman, and in 1975, Milos Forman directed a screen adaptation which won the Big Five Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Director, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Ken was originally involved in the creation of the film, but left two weeks into the production. He claimed never to have seen the movie because of a dispute over the $20,000 he was initially paid for the film rights. In addition to the dispute over money, he despised that, unlike in the book, the film was not narrated by the Chief Brunden character. He also disagreed with the idea that Jack Nicholson should be cast as the main character, Randall McMurphy, as he wanted Gene Hackman in the role instead. Despite his criticisms, his wife Faye has stated that her husband was generally supportive of the film and was pleased that it had been made. Though being hailed as one of the best movies ever, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the novel is one of America's most challenged and banned books. In 1974, five residents of Strongsville, Ohio, sued the local Board of Education to remove the novel from classrooms. They deemed the book pornographic and said it glorifies criminal activity, has a tendency to corrupt juveniles, and contains descriptions of bestiality, bizarre violence and torture, dismemberment, death, and human elimination. The same year the movie was released, in 1975, The cities of Randolph, New York, and Alton, Oklahoma, removed the book from all of their public schools. And so it would continue, city by city and school by school, for decades to come. The success of this book, as well as the demolition of the Perry Lane cabins in August 1963, allowed Kesey to move to a log house at 7940 La Honda Road in La Honda, California, a rustic hamlet in the Santa Cruz Mountains, 15 miles to the west of Stanford University's campus. There, he frequently entertained friends and many others with parties he called acid tests, which involved music by his favorite band, the Grateful Dead, black lights, fluorescent paint, strobe lights, and other psychedelic effects in addition to, you guessed it, acid. These parties were described in some of the beat poet Allen Ginsberg's poems and served as the basis for Tom Wolfe's book, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, which is an early exemplar of the nonfiction novel along with Truman Capote's book, In Cold Blood, which you can hear more about on our debut episode. Other first-hand accounts of the acid tests appear in Hell's Angels, The Strange and Terrible Saga of the Outlaw Motorcycle Gangs by Hunter S. Thompson, which we explore on our third episode. With the success of the novel and with a growing following, Ken Kesey and his group of friends and devotees, called the Merry Pranksters, lived communally at Kesey's homes in California and Oregon in the mid to late 1960s. They would take long road trips, traveling across the United States on a psychedelic painted school bus called Further, organizing parties and giving out LSD. In Kesey's case, not many could take the dose that he could. Owsley Stanley, the infamous LSD creator, was quoted in Rolling Stone as saying that for most people, 150 to 200 micrograms is a proper dose. When you get to 400, 
you just totally lose it. I don't care who you are. Kesey liked 400. He wanted to lose it. Tom Wolf reported that Kesey sometimes took as much as 1,500 micrograms. He would go on to write other works and novels after one flew over the cuckoo's nest, in particular, Sometime a Great Notion, but they never gained the same success, though Sometime a Great Notion has been hailed as his magnus opus. Later in life, his aggressive use of very large doses of acid was to blame for his diminished literary output as some critics attacked him for being weakened by his continued drug habit. He acknowledged in an interview in 1990 that he may have overindulged, but on that subject, he also went on to say, If I could go back in time and trade in certain experiences I've had for the brain cells presumably burnt up, he remarked, it would be a tough decision. After he settled into a quieter life in Pleasant Hill, California, he involved himself in the community and led a respectable life built around his family and friends. He did, however, drink heavily, possibly as a way to deal with his lack of literary output. Around this time also, he said, if I were to redo my life, I would try to develop a really steady writing everyday thing. A 40th anniversary edition of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which includes sketches he made while working as an orderly at a California hospital, was released in 2002. And finally, this year, 2022, the novel marks its 60th anniversary and is still a controversial, original, and remarkable piece of writing. As usual, let me leave you with a final quote from the pusher of boundaries. You can count how many seeds are in the apple, but not how many apples are in the seed. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemoa Harden. We at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me slash houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can head over to subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page, House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason Lemore Harden. And music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Crystal M. Sanchez and Jason Lemore Harden. 